right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm Bryce, uh, back as always, uh, ready for another deep dive on a very interesting project. This is Say Network, and I'm joined by uh, one of the co-founders, Jay Yogg. Uh, Jay, welcome to uh, the Crypto 101 podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, sir. Very, very pleased. Um, before we dive into Say Network, uh, let's dive into your background and get acquainted here. Um, what were you doing before you started Say Network and, and what was the main motivator to, to do this? Yeah, so my background is I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, everyone's surrounded by tech all the time. So I ended up going to UCLA to study computer science. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up getting into crypto back in 2017. At that time, my roommate, he was going through Binance Launchpad. So we worked on a couple of different projects together. And then afterwards, I ended up joining Robinhood, right? Like oh, cool. Robinhood. Um, yeah. And I, I spent almost four years over there. I saw the company 10X um, and I was an engineering lead when the GameStop saga happened. Um, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I remember writing about that and having people on the podcast and that yeah. was a fun time. Fun is definitely one way to describe it. <laughs> from our side, from your yeah. side. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for anyone who's listening in that isn't super familiar, um, there was this entire meme stop saga happening at that time, right? There was GameStop, AMC, roughly 10, 15 other stocks that were just basically retail was getting behind them and the price was rising very quickly. There are hedge funds that were shorting them and then hedge funds were getting short squeezed. So hedge funds were losing money. Um, and in the middle of all of this chaos, like Robinhood was the one that everyone was using to purchase stocks, stocks like um, GameStop. And then just one day out of the blue, Robinhood just turned off buys, right? So a lot of the buy pressure for these stocks suddenly went away and Robinhood did not tell anyone why they decided to turn off these buys. Um, as you can imagine, it was just complete and utter chaos, both yeah. externally and internally. So for, I mean, the outside world, they're just super pissed off, right? Like Robinhood suddenly went from being like the good guy to being the bad guy. Everyone was like, oh, Robinhood's colluding with like Citadel and all of these like bad um, firms to help uh, make profits for um, established institutions. And I mean, honestly, that's, that's not what happened. But Robinhood just did not do a good job of communicating at all around what was happening. So there was just complete radio silence. No one had any clue what was going on. And as you can imagine, like as an insider, it was just terrible because you put your reputation on the line to join a place like Robinhood. And then when there's like dozens of people hitting you up, like, yo, what the hell is happening? Why can't I buy Robinhood stock anymore? Um, or why can't I buy GameStop, uh, GameStop anymore on Robinhood? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it feels really bad, right? Um, right? Your team is also asking you questions like, yo, what is going on? And I mean, back then I had nothing to be telling them. And I mean, you just feel really, really powerless when all of this is happening and it just is not great. Um, so that, that's why after going through that experience myself, I became much more of a decentralization maxi, right? Like the issue with Robinhood is that it was just a centralized institution that was just being completely opaque. That led to a bunch of issues. Anything that happens in a decentralized way is inherently trustless, inherently transparent, and it would have avoided a lot of the issues that Robinhood saw. And I mean, we see this time and time again, right? Like it's not just a Robinhood issue. Whenever you have decentralized institutions that are opaque, things can just become very messy very quickly. Um, we saw this with 3AC, we saw this with FTX, and I'm sure there's going to be more opaque centralized institutions that uh, lead to issues in the future as well. So, I mean, after going through all of this myself, uh, my co-founder and I, we originally wanted to start building a decentralized exchange. We thought that we, it'd be cool to build something like Robinhood, except build it in an on-chain, decentralized, trustless, transparent manner that would have avoided a lot of the issues that we saw. So that was the kind of inspiration for all of this. This was back in 2021. We got set out to build a decentralized exchange. 
Um, this then led to us looking into all the infrastructure we could use, right? Every layer one, every layer two, all the other infrastructure we could use to build an exchange. And we realized that it was lacking. Like building a good on-chain exchange just did not work. Um, and that was the inspiration for what is now SAE. So SAE is layer one blockchain that is building the best infrastructure for exchanges. And we can go more into what that looks like, but that was the original inspiration for our entire journey. Love it. Man, that, that's impressive. Um, and tell us about your co-founder, Jeff, um, while we're on, on the basis of introductions. Uh, what's Jeff like and, and how are you guys the perfect complement to be accomplishing what is a really you know big undertaking? Yeah, yeah. So my co-founder, Jeff, he grew up in the Bay as well. We both knew each other from high school speech and debate. Um, did you by any chance do speech and debate in high school? Um, I did not do speech and debate. Uh, believe it or not, I was doing like comedy sports and like theater and stuff like that. And mm. but yeah, didn't didn't do speech and debate, but I still loved getting in front of people. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, honestly, comedy, I feel like it's very similar to some events in speech where it's just like humorous interpretation, for example. Um, totally. Yeah. In, in our case, we both met each other by doing public forum debate back in high school. Um, awesome. We originally debated against one another. And then afterwards, we started just hanging out more from speech and debate. Um, and then in, I guess, we just stayed in touch back in 2020 or 2019. We tried starting our original company together. Um, and then that company didn't really work out, but we did realize that we work well together, which is then why we started working um, again together back in 2021. In terms of like his background, he has more of a business development background. So he spent time at Goldman Sachs. He spent time at KOTU. And I think it ends up being a phenomenal kind of um, like his background and his skill set complements mine very well. Because in terms of like if you have like two technical co-founders, there tends to be a very large overlap in terms of the skills that they have. Whereas if you have someone from a more of a BD background and then someone from more of an engineering background, you end up supporting each other's skill sets very strongly. So I think um, from that perspective, it's a phenomenal uh, kind of match. And I mean, beyond that, like what is a layer one blockchain, right? A layer one blockchain, you're building really, really complicated technology, like cutting edge technology that is really hard distributed systems problems. But beyond that, it's also a sales problem because you have to go and convince teams to go and start building on top of that layer one blockchain. So I think our combination is one of the best combinations you can have for building any kind of um, crypto infrastructure uh, product. Yeah. So amongst the hustle bustle of our busy lives, my wife and I are always on the lookout for ways to streamline our daily routines without compromising on the quality of our meals. And that's where Factor comes into play, perfectly aligning with our desire to save time amidst our hectic work schedule. Now, Factor's array of delicious, ready-to-eat meals, expertly prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, simplifies eating well every single day. And with over 35 weekly options catering to various dietary preferences like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, you know, Factor ensures we're well equipped for the week ahead. And the convenience of having nutrition-packed meals and over 55 add-ons delivered directly to our door transforms weekly meal planning into a delightful experience. And, and guys, real quick, Factor has a two-minute meal as well, many of them. And it offers us the luxury of enjoying restaurant-quality food in the comfort of our own home, ready to heat and eat at our convenience. The broad selection extends beyond meals to include snacks, smoothies, and everything else, right? Covering all of our little hankerings and cravings throughout the day. Now, look, the service's cost-effectiveness when compared to takeout 
paired with the assurance of nutritious and delicious options is what makes Factor a no-brainer for me and my wife. Um, and it should be a no-brainer for you too. Now, what truly sets Factor apart is its flexibility, meaning the option to choose between 16 to 18 meals per week, along with the ability to pause or reschedule deliveries, ensuring that the service adapts to our ever-changing schedules and not the other way around. We're in charge, right? The no prep, the no mess meals, uh, guys, it's just been a game changer for us. And now we're able to focus on what matters most, building our relationship together without the hassle of meal prep and cleanup. So if you're ready to embrace a week filled with effortless, feel-good meals, then visit factormeals.com slash crypto10150 and use the code crypto10150 for an incredible 50% off your first order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your meal time with Factor's fast, upscale and easy dining solutions again that's crypto 10150 that's the code at factormeals.com slash crypto 10150 and claim your 50 percent off discount today say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And there's a lot of interesting things happening there, especially to, to that last point you said. You know, I know projects like Axelar and Pith and Sushi, and um, they're they're choosing to build on Say Network, and we'll, and we'll talk about those. But I want to go back to really the the beginning of uh, of Say Network. You said you were going to build a decentralized exchange, and my, I guess my question is, at what point did you say we're not going to use Ethereum or we're not going to use something that's already out there? We're going to have to. We're like we by necessity have to build our own chain. Is that how it unfolded? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So we wanted to go out and build a derivative exchange, right? And then mm -hmm. we wanted to build it on chain. We wanted to use an order book model because that at the time we thought was going to be more performance than building it using an underlying automated market making model. Right. Um, so something more like Serum as opposed to Uniswap. Exactly. What you're looking for. Yeah. So we considered Ethereum. Ethereum is just horrendous in terms of both gas fees are just ridiculous on Ethereum L1. And so, uh, I guess, so are the actual, the throughput that you can get on Ethereum L1 is abysmal right now. Like you can't get like thousands of TPS on um, Ethereum L1. So we could quickly crossed that out of our list. Um, then there were more of the high performance layer ones. Like I think Solana with Serum would be like the most clear example of something that was close to working. Um, I, I don't really think it really made sense on any of the other like higher performance layer ones at the time. Um, the issue with building on top of a general purpose chain, like building a serum on top of a general purpose chain, is from serum's standpoint, you inherit all of the limitations of the underlying layer one without being able to make any optimizations to benefit your mm. exchange, right? Yeah. Um, and with the sense of meaning in practice for serum's case is there's a bunch of congestion, which ended up being catastrophically bad for serum, 
Like right. on an order book based exchange, if there's congestion, it ends up being worse than for other types of product. Because if there's still quotes that some market makers are able to pick off, whereas you're not able to cancel them, then as a market maker, it just suddenly becomes very difficult for you to make markets on that exchange. Um, so congestion just ends up being really bad uh, for um, building on top of a general purpose chain like that. In certain cases, there were also a couple of other issues, but we realized that the 6 model wouldn't really work, um, which is then when we considered, okay, should we start building our own layer two, right? Basically taking the same approach that DYDX was doing with DYDX v3 um, and having a separate rollup that was only for an exchange. Um, that approach also did not work. Um, that's just because building rollups right now do not scale. Um, specifically in terms of the throughput, you end up having an upper bound throughput of around 6,000 TPS on any Ethereum rollup right now if you're writing data to the layer one. And the way that that works is with the Ethereum rollup, roll uh, for those who don't know, is that like Optimism and Arbitrum or exactly. is there something else? Yeah, Optimism, Arbitrum, like all those optimistic and ZK rollups. Um, and the way that these rollups work is you have some off-chain execution happening. So in the case of Optimism, they would have like the Optimism uh, sequencer that is uh, handling all of this off-chain execution. And then afterwards, there's data that gets written on-chain. So specifically, they take all of the transactions that happened, they compress those transactions, and then they write those transactions on-chain. And on Ethereum, there's a target limit of 15 million gas per block. And every single byte of data that is written to Ethereum costs 16 gas. So for things like simple Ether transfers, like just transferring Ether from my account to your account, um, that would end up having a cap of 6,000 TPS, assuming the entirety of the Ethereum gas block or Ethereum block um, was used exclusively for these rollups, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, that's never what happens. In reality, you end up having other stuff happening in that block as well. Like you end up having OpenSea, Uniswap competing for that L1 block space. So um, we quickly crossed that out as well because, I mean, realistically, if, if you look at rollups right now, they're not really getting hundred, even hundreds of TPS, let alone thousands of TPS. So that's not particularly scalable. And that's when we realized, okay, it makes more sense to just build our own layer one. Um, and then we considered, like, does it make sense to start building everything completely from scratch? Or should we take some tooling that already exists and then avoid recreating the wheel? And um, that's why we decided to get uh, start building with the way that we were building. Um, and then very quickly, we also realized that it doesn't make sense to be solving two of the hardest problems in crypto, namely building an exchange and also building the layer underlying infrastructure. So then pretty quickly, pretty early on as well, we realized that building the exchange ourselves doesn't make sense if the problem is that the infrastructure is not scalable right now. Mm. So that's why we decided to only build the underlying layer one infrastructure. We are not building any applications on top. And at this point, there are over 150 applications that are building either exchanges or other types of products as well just on top of this core sailor one blockchain. I love it. And kind of just on that last note, you said, um, you know, those those two big problems with building a blockchain. What what are the big challenges with launching your own chain? I mean, it can't can't be very easy to launch your own chain with, you know, having to think about how to validate it and get all the security up and make it fast. And, you know, yeah. it seems like it's it's one of the hardest things to do. Like, you know, what what do you think about launching a chain? Yeah, so I mean, there's like two buckets of problems, right? Bucket number one is technical problems, and then bucket two is ecosystem building problems. Mm -hmm. I think the technical problems are really hard, like distributed systems, like building something like a blockchain is one of the hardest distributed systems problems out there, but it's solvable. And there's very objective criteria for what good performance looks like. There's people that have built similar systems before, so it's easier to hire for those roles as well. Um, so I think from our standpoint, it's say like, we were able to build a really good engineering team very quickly. 
very early on as well, right? Like, so most of our engineering team has backgrounds from places like Databricks, where they're solving really hard distributed systems problems, and Robinhood as well, right? Like in Robinhood's case, we're also solving distributed systems problems. Like, it, we are seeing a type like Robinhood was seeing a type of load that most companies never ever see in the entirety of their existence, and Robinhood was um, handling that load on a basically day by day basis. So most of our team is really good um, engineers from Silicon Valley. So we did get lucky from that standpoint. Um, we were able to hire well. So we didn't really run into that many technical issues. Um, the bigger thing that makes launching infrastructure difficult is getting people to use that infrastructure. Because right now in crypto, there's a lot of infrastructure that's out there. Um, the bigger question is just who's going to start building on top of your infrastructure and using it. So from an ecosystem building standpoint, I think the reason that say has been getting a lot more attention recently is not purely because of the technology. It's also because there's been a lot more ecosystem traction happening on say, right? Like there's been over 150 projects building on say, and this is all without giving away any money and grants. So the kind of thesis that we have internally is definitely resonating with teams. And I think that's why I say has been just a much more interesting project from a public optics standpoint. And, and what is that thesis that's really incentivizing people? Like, how do you get people to come on the chain and build without having um, incentives or uh, monetary sort of incentives or liquidity mining? And, you know, I, I guess, yeah. How do you guys think about that? Yeah. So internally, we just have one core thesis at Say Labs, just one, right? And that is that exchanges are the most important application in crypto, both on-chain and off-chain. It's proven so, true so far. I mean, that's pretty much all there is that's useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I do think exchanges have the most clear product market fit. There's a couple of other things like stable coins that might come close, but exchanges inherently are where is where like most of the activity and demand in crypto comes from right now. Um, like if you look at Binance, for example, the reason people go to Binance.com day in and day out is to be able to trade on their exchange. And all the other services that they offer, like staking and lending, um, those all result in just demand going back to the exchange. Um, same thing on Ethereum, right? Like you have the core applications like OpenSea, Uniswap, and these are like the most important applications in Ethereum. And then there's a lot of other applications that are built up around these exchanges. Like if you want to take out a loan, for example, you would go to Aave, borrow money, and then afterwards you would just go and trade it on exchange again. And this isn't just true for DeFi. That's a common misconception that people have that exchanges are only related to DeFi. But exchanges are necessary for literally everything in crypto right now. Like if you look at NFTs, for example, you have these non-fungible tokens and candidly their core utility right now is just to trade them, right? Like you can't really do that much with most of these NFT collections, but you can trade them. So you go to an NFT marketplace and guess what? That's just an exchange. Um, same thing with games. You get in-game assets and then you go to like Axis decks or Stepin decks and then go and trade these in-game assets. Right. So exchanges have are one of the most, are arguably the most important application in crypto. The um, RuneScape auction house, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> the, the question then becomes, how do you help them grow? How do you help them scale, right? And the core promise that we make to teams is we will focus on the infrastructure. We will help build that infrastructure that helps you grow your exchange, scale your exchange. Mm. And you can focus on user acquisition. You can focus on mechanism design. And you don't need to worry about the infrastructure. And I, I think that's what has really strongly resonated with teams. Um, and that's what led to the initial growth of exchanges that we're building on today. Are we, you know, are you, is the ecosystem building towards or envisioning um, a world where it's multi-chain and like all these fragmented liquidity pools on all these different chains, like are kind of coalesced in some capacity or, or 
are we going to just be in a world with all these different siloed liquidity pools? So we think that in the long term, the way that exchanges are going to work is it's going to be a winner take most market, right? Okay. And it ends up being a much better experience if there's no, I guess the less friction there is, the better the experience ends up being. So our thesis is that it's going to end up being single chains that end up having um, more liquidity. And that's just based, liquidity comes from successful exchanges that are able to draw in users. So we think five years from now, there's going to be a winner take most market where like the top five exchanges or top 10 exchanges will have most of the liquidity, most of the trading volume. And what we think is that the reason that like what's lacking right now in terms of people being able to build those solid exchanges is just not having the right infrastructure. So that's why we're building the correct infrastructure to help five years from now, the top exchanges out there all be built on say. So, so there will be several different decentralized exchanges probably built on top of say, is that the correct understanding? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And they'll all each have their own liquidity and who knows, maybe there will be an application that could aggregate all that. But yeah, that sounds really cool. And um, with projects like Axelar, who's really focused on cross chain stuff and Pith, who seems like they're building uh, on a lot of different chains. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious what they're, um, what, you know, those two guys in particular um, are using, um, say, Network 4, or how are they thinking about partnering with you guys? Yeah, so I mean, Axelar would be in terms of a bridge to be able to help bridge assets from other chains, chains like Ethereum. Um, from say standpoint, one of the biggest things we want to make sure is there from day one is having all the infrastructure set up to enable seamless, just bringing in of liquidity from other ecosystems and being able to interact with the chain through like wallets and other tooling, right? So Axelar is going to be instrumental from that side. Um, and then in terms of Pith, like getting more involved from an Oracle standpoint, there's going to be a lot of different types of products that are getting built on say, and having reliable data feeds is where Pith can get um, involved. So that, that's what that collaboration would look like. Super cool. Um, and now I, I don't know if it's just me or if this is like a, a common misconception, but and I think it might just have to do with the spelling because it's so close, but say is sometimes compared to Sui. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, yeah. but and and also Aptos, and I think it's just because Aptos is really high performant. It's new. Yeah. Say is high performance. It's new. It's sexy. It's got some of the same kind of key concepts. But can you actually elaborate on these uh, the differences and maybe even the similarities if there are any between those those three? Yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah, I mean, when we got started, we picked the name Say because we wanted to have an ecosystem that is fast and has deep liquidity. Um, Say is the name of a Norwegian whale. It lives deep in the water and is one of the fastest wheels out there. So I that's how we that. ended up getting the name very, very early on. And then afterwards, it turned out that we had a, a similar name, which we did not know about back then. Um, but yeah, so I guess in terms of if, if you look at like the progression of blockchains, you had like layer one blockchains like Ethereum, for example. And now we're starting to see many more kind of um, generation two blockchains like Aptos and Sui and Say as well. And I think that's why they're all being compared against one another, because they're all roughly launching at similar timeframes. They're all quickly getting a lot of um, ecosystem traction as well, which is why I think we're being kind of compared to them right now. Um, and in terms of the kind of technical differences, I, I think the biggest difference uh, between, say, and the other two ecosystems would just be the time to finality. So from a technical standpoint, we're building the best infrastructure for exchanges. And one of the most important uh, kind of points around that is how quickly it takes for a transaction to be finalized. Because if you have lower time to finality, let's say 300 milliseconds versus three seconds, that leads to a substantially improved user experience and also a substantially improved market maker experience. Specifically for market makers, the lower the time to finality is, 
the less risk that they're taking on when they place a trade. And as a result, they're able to quote tighter spreads that users then benefit from on-chain. So you have tighter liquidity um, or you have tighter spreads, which also leads to greater liquidity as well. So that's why we chose to focus very early on on building essentially very fast infrastructure. And SEI is currently the fastest chain to finality out there. In our internal testnet, we're seeing, uh, or in the current public testnet, we're seeing 500 millisecond time to finality. And this is with conditions that will mimic mainnet. And then in internal testnet, we're seeing closer to 300 milliseconds, which is, um, those are conditions where every node is co-located in the same geographic zone. So say is just point blank the fastest chain out there. And I think that's going to end up being the main differentiator between say and Aptos and Sui. It just ends up being better to build an exchange on say because your users, your market makers will have better experiences on say. Love it. Um, and uh, not not to draw comparisons too much, but I do have a question about um, spam and, and stuff like that. Like, you know, the most recent one, the spam attacks that hit Solana make Serum unusable, kind of as we had alluded to earlier. And so um, how does Say Network think about, you know, spam attacks or all these sort of um, denial of service attacks that make potentially an exchange that could be built on Say Network unusable for a period of time? Yeah. So, I mean, there's different levels of spam and we've thought about it pretty deeply. Um, the first level of spam would just be like just pure spam that is people just trying to mess with the chain for malicious reasons. Um, say it has gas fees. So even some amount of gas fees will help in the long term prevent this just totally malicious type of spam. Um, the second type of spam is related to MEB. So in the case of Solana, for example, one of the biggest sources of spam in their case was people trying to win liquidations or people trying to win ARBs. And if there's no clear like um, MEV kind of prioritization framework, then it just leads to a bunch of spam. So MEV. For, yeah. So for the audience, MEV stands for maximal extractable value. And I mean, at a high level, it's just the block producer can order transactions in whatever the way they want to within a block. And sometimes you can make money if you're the first one to be like to have your transaction be prioritized at the top of the block. Like one example would be, let's say that there's a puzzle on chain. And whoever, win, whoever is able to find out the answer for the puzzle, they win $100. And then there's 10 different people that find out the answer for this puzzle. In that case, only the first person is going to be able to win that $100. And the other nine people, if their transactions come afterwards in that block, they're going to have the solution, but they're not going to be able to make any money. So there's a lot of incentive to be the person at the top of the block. Um, in Say's case, we're going to be having MEV redistribution framework set up pretty early on. Um, so what will happen over here is that people will be able to bid for the right to be at the top of the block. So in this example with like a hundred different or 10 different people that all want to win a hundred dollars, they'll progressively just keep bidding each of each other up until one of them decides that, okay, $99 is the bid I'm making and no one else wants to really make a bid higher than that. Then that person who makes a $99 bid would be able to win that hundred dollar opportunity, but they're paying $99 for the opportunity to win it. So they end up making a $1 profit. Um, and then the other $99 will actually get redistributed back to the chain in Say's case. So validators and delegators will actually benefit from that MEV redistribution. Um, but in terms of spam, like having this bidding system that happens will help prevent that spam because now there's no longer any incentive to just submit thousands of transactions to the blockchain um, to try to win that MEV opportunity. And then yeah, that, that was a really cool um, description of MEV that I hadn't really heard before, but it definitely made me think about like how there's so much discussion right now about the diff, um, like Ethereum is going to try and have different um, differentiations between the block builder and the block validator because yeah. there's kind of like an inherent conflict of interest there like you were just describing so the yeah. fact that you guys are already thinking about that from the base layer is super cool yeah i mean ethereum is definitely spearheading a lot of research around pbs and around i mean just mev in general 
Um, I, I think in our case right now, we're going to start off by just setting up MEV redistribution frameworks. So that does help really strongly align value incentives. And then afterwards around like proposal builder separation and other um, things that Ethereum is looking into, that, that would be more for a longer term thing for say to focus on. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to your original point about spam, I, I guess the third type of spam that we would see would be just like legitimate traffic, right? Like a lot of people that are excited about trading on say, and then they're all just submitting transactions. And that's a really, really exciting problem to have. Yeah. Um, outside of Ethereum, there hasn't really been a blockchain that has had an issue like that. Um, if you do end up running into that problem, that basically means you're one of the top projects out there. Um, and from say's standpoint, the main thing that we have in place to help with this is this concept of order batching, right? So when you end up having a lot of spam, the main entities that get hurt are market makers because they're not able to get their transactions included. Um, mm -hmm. So rather than, let's say there's a market maker that's uh, providing liquidity to 50 separate exchanges. Um, in other ecosystems, they would either need to submit 50 separate transactions or they ha they'd have to do something super special like building a custom smart contract and that becomes really complicated. Um, in Say's case, the market makers would just need to submit one transaction. That transaction would be composed of, every, of 50 separate orders, and then the chain would be able to process all 50 separate orders independently. So what does this mean in terms of um, congestion? This means that the market makers just need to get in one transaction, and they can just pay gas fees to get that transaction prioritized so that they don't end up getting into a situation where their stale orders are getting sniped by other market makers. And especially if they're going through some kind of MEV redistribution or MEV auction process, they can be guaranteed that their transaction will be included in the block. So it makes it very easy for them to um, just make sure that they don't run into issues with spam uh, through this order batching process. I'm curious, so, um, like when I think of like that, that, that good quality problem of just like everybody's using it, um, is Say Network capable of handling like a bunch of these high frequency trading bots? And um, like, I'm curious just from like a comparison, like the NASDAQ, like if somebody is, I've, I've heard like, I think one story of somebody who like shut it down because they were making too many trades every second. Like, is there a throttling mechanism or I mean, could it handle as much as the NASDAQ? Yeah. So from Say's standpoint right now, we're seeing around 20,000 orders that can be processed per second. Um, wow. Yeah. On the... <clears throat> public testnet right now. So it's definitely very scalable already. That's already in magnitude uh, higher than what you would see on other ecosystems, which tend to be between like one to 3,000 transactions that can be processed per second. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental differences between doing things on-chain and doing things off-chain right now is that things that happen off-chain, they do not have to go through decentralized consensus, that they inherently end up being more performant, at least right now. So one of the things we're going to be focusing on from say side is how do we improve the infrastructure to help get better horizontal scalability and to be able to get better um, throughput per sector, throughput performance in the future. Um, that's not, <coughs> sorry. Um, that's something, I mean, 20,000 orders per second is good enough for now. Um, it doesn't make sense to just be trying to do a bunch of premature optimizations, but in the future, that'll be one thing we're exploring in terms of how we can add in horizontal scalability to support greater throughput as well. Yeah. And then is the um, is the say network proof of stake or is it proof of work or maybe it's something entirely different? And can you kind of talk about that base layer consensus? Of course. Um, so say is making use of proof of stake consensus, um, more specifically delegated proof of stake. So the way that that works is there will be, let's say, n different nodes. And then each of these validator nodes would be required to agree on whatever a block is before it can be added to the network. So in say's case, the way that we're approaching it is we have single stock finality. So in order for a block to get added to the network, you need to have consensus 
between two thirds of the validator nodes. You can't optimistically add it to the chain like you have with other ecosystems, like for example, proof of work um, blockchains. Um, in the case of say, if you have N nodes, you need two thirds of them to agree on a block and then it gets added to the chain. Um, so a couple of things that end up happening from that. Uh, the first is that say is able to get really, really fast time to finality. The 300 millisecond internal testnet time to finality number that I mentioned is really only possible to do because we use a consensus mechanism that supports um, having all the validators have consensus between each other before a block can be added, right? With other ecosystems, it ends up being a lot slower because there needs to be multiple blocks that are added to a chain before that block is actually finalized. So say ends up having much faster time to finality because of that. Um, the second really cool thing is say does not suffer from reorgs that can happen. So on other chains, if there's a block that gets added, it might get dropped afterwards because some other block or some other chain is considered the canonical chain instead. Um, in Solana's case, for example, roughly 5% of blocks get reorged away. So they're just dropped from the canonical chain. Um, and this ends up being really messy from a market maker experience standpoint. Because if you're a market maker and you want to provide, um, basically, you, let's say you provide liquidity and then you're opening a position on chain and then you're trying to hedge it off chain, it becomes kind of like a difficult problem to solve, like when you want to actually be hedging the position, right? Because you can either uh, hedge the position as soon as a block is added to the chain. But if that block gets reorged, then you might end up in a situation where you no longer have a position on chain, but you're left holding this hedged short position off chain, for example, and then you might just lose money on that. Um, the second thing that could happen is you wait until multiple blocks are added to the network and then things are finalized. That might take 10, 15 seconds, and that's when you hedge your position off chain. But that means that you've just experienced 10 seconds of price volatility, and you're basically eating that risk yourself. So that's not the ideal kind of outcome either. Um, so that's why if you have single slot finality, it ends up leading to a much better market maker experience. Um, and I mean, that's one thing that market makers have been pretty happy about um, just with the approach that is taking. Yeah, it, that, that's awesome. Um, is that, I, I think I read twin turbo consensus. Is that the mechanism that you just described? Exactly, yeah. So we've called it twin turbo consensus. And there's a bunch of cool stuff that we've done around that with regards to block propagation, block processing as well. But the core output um, that people care about from that is it's just really, really fast time to finality. And it's also single slot time to finality. So it ends up being um, just really good for the user experience. Love it. Um, let, let's talk about... Um, an ecosystem fund. I, I think I read as well that there was an ecosystem fund that was launched um, around the Say network to encourage people to build. Um, mm -hmm. How has that been going? Yeah. So for context for the audience, uh, we've had over $120 million that have been committed to this ecosystem fund. So the way that the ecosystem fund works is there's market makers, there's investors, they're all contributing to this fund. And the core objective is to help grow the Say ecosystem. And the specific things that the say projects building on say typically need help with is first of all, getting investor capital and secondly, getting liquidity on chain, right? So the $120 million ecosystem fund is a commitment that all of this money will be getting deployed um, on to either invest directly into projects building on say or to help provide liquidity on chain. So that's been really a strong motivator for projects that have been building on say. Like initially when we got started, they weren't sure if there'd be any investors that were interested in investing, they weren't sure if there would be liquidity for them. But this commitment has made it very clear that um, it's very safe to build on SIG. Um, and there will be a lot of help once they are ready to receive that help. So that's one of the reasons that we started seeing so many different teams building on SIG, uh, just because there's very clear support that they'll be getting. Love it. 
Um, Jay, before I kind of move on to uh, some higher level um, questions just on um, what it's like to build through a bear market and things of that nature, are, are there any um, you know points that I didn't uh, mention or that we didn't hit on yet on Say Network that you'd like to mention? I, I think the main thing would just be there's yeah 150 projects that are building on Say. Um, some of these projects are purely exchanges. So these are projects that are building either perps exchanges or um, like normal spot AMMs. Um, one of the projects to highlight over there would be Sushi. So Sushi is one of the biggest projects in the Ethereum ecosystem. They're going to be one of the first projects to leave the Ethereum ecosystem or launch an instance outside of the Ethereum ecosystem um, and build on say. So that's massive. And they're going to be launching their first perps exchange. And what makes this perps exchange special is it's going to support cross-margining. So different assets mm-hmm. will be able to use, uh, will be um, able to get used as collateral for um, the positions that are opened up. Um, so that's one of the really exciting projects. Um, and yeah, I mean, outside of that, we also have other projects that are building core DeFi protocols. There's projects that are building stuff related to gaming, um, NFTs, and there's also two different rollups that are getting built on say right now. One of those rollups is Nitro, which is a Solana VM rollup. Um, another one is called Paddle, and that is a Move VM rollup. Very cool. Love it. And, and so um, there's a lot of big things going on. I encourage everybody to check out Say Network, and you guys will be able to check it out um, in the show notes. You'll have links, and, and we'll get every everything dialed in there. But before we let you go, I just want to know what, you know, this has been a really tough market. I mean, Bitcoin fell from 69,000 down to 15. Now we're around 30 or 25, depending on when people are hearing this uh, podcast here. But, but, you know, and you're a leader. Do, do people come to you and on your team and ask you like, hey, am I going to have my job tomorrow? It's, you know, everybody's saying there's going to be a recession mm-hmm. and, you know, morale is low because everybody's your portfolios are down. What's it like from your perspective as a leader in the space through this period of time? Yeah. I mean, so I guess a couple of thoughts around that. First of all, within our team internally, um, we just announced a $30 million fundraise for Say Labs. Um, so I guess from our side, we have several years of runway. And if anyone is interested in learning more about Say, we're aggressively hiring right now. So please nice. reach out to me on Twitter if you're interested in talking about that. Um, more broadly, building in a bear market, I think that it actually ends up being really, really positive because there's absolutely no other external noise, right? And during a bull market, everyone might be trying to hop onto that ecosystem that has like the most short-term liquidity or the most short-term traction. Um, In a bear market, builders are objectively always considering what is the best ecosystem for me to build on so that I'll be able to get greatest adoption in the longer term. So bear markets are phenomenal for building because it just helps make sure that everyone's interests are aligned. And it helps people that are actually chasing after more long-term adoption rather than people um, that are just trying to make like money in the short term. So personally, I mean, internally, we don't really think too much about whether it's a bull market or a bear market. We have a very clear mission that we're chasing after. So we're just heads down going towards that goal. And we have no control over the macro perspective. So we don't really think about it very much. We have noticed it's actually been easier to build in the middle of the bear market than it realistically would have been um, during the bull market. Yeah, you could iterate a lot quicker in a, in a- bear market when I guess you're not being pestered by the community all the time and there's all this traffic and hustle bustle and these conferences and you know distractions right you know bull markets are just basically a lot of distraction and bear markets are where the builders uh double down um exactly so no I'm curious your thoughts here um not to get like uh political or diving into regulation or any sort of stuff like that but I am curious your thoughts on Coinbase announcing an offshore derivatives exchange Um, Do you have any general thoughts there you'd like to talk about? So I think that as a builder in the United States, um, 
there is definitely a lack of regulatory clarity. And I mean, we saw this with the most yeah, recent kind of time. Uh, Gary Gensler um, <laughs> congressional, I guess what do you call it, congressional hearing, congressional interview. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so from a business standpoint, having lack of clarity just makes things a lot harder. So it makes sense a lot of companies that have the flexibility of operating outside of the United States are just getting licenses to operate in other countries and launching from there. So I, I think that, I mean, fundamentally, the United States wants to stay competitive from a technological standpoint. I think that there should be a push to have more innovation happening in the crypto space. I think that it is possible for there to be some kind of middle ground between making sure that there's regulation while also having enough kind of clarity around that regulation to make sure that it's not just like difficult for builders to know what to do. I think that an environment with zero regulation is difficult for us to get at this point, just given all the big kind of catastrophes that happened last year with Terra, that happened with FTX as well, that happened with like 3AC and like all of the other um, yeah. kind of institutions of a similar type. Grayscale. I mean, I feel like I got stabbed in the back by those guys, man. Come on. They, yeah. they were the most buttoned up guys that they, <laughs> they lost. They were like the start of everything. What the hell? Yeah. So I, I think at this point, just crypto is too big and too many things have happened that there will like zero regulation is not really possible at this point. Um, so I think working with regulators to make sure that there's clarity is a much better um, kind of uh, aim to go after at this point. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, um, you know, crypto did get a little bit of a tailwind um, when Silicon Valley Bank kind of blew up and Signature and Silvergate and all that stuff. People were like, oh, shoot, like you know, people realizing, hey, Bitcoin and Ethereum don't have that counterparty risk that everybody's getting licked by. Yeah. Um, and I think that really was like a big moment for us. Did you feel that same way? I mean, you're in the heart of where it was kind of all going down, where people yeah. talk about crypto a lot. It was pretty crazy because I think it just really, I mean, short term, it felt pretty bad. But whenever these like centralized blowups happen, it just really emphasizes the core reasons, the core values that we care about that totally. got me into crypto in the first place, right? Anything that happens on chain, inherently trustless, inherently transparent. And I think those are really strong values that are going to lead to greater adoption of decentralized technology in the future. Like, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the U.S. financial system just getting up tomorrow and being like, yo, we're going to become decentralized like immediately. But I, I do think it's going to like these core values definitely resonate with people, especially trustlessness. Um, so I think there will be more of a gradual adoption that happens starting in developing countries and then gradually moving over to developed countries. Yeah. I couldn't agree more um, with everything you said, Jay. This was incredible. And I really want to bring you back um, to talk about Say Network again as it continues to develop. Um, mm -hmm. I've got one last closing question for you, um, kind of just you know to get a little bit more insight into in who you are, what motivates you. But I'm, I'm curious, who's one person, one builder in the space, academic, businessman, whatever, that you admire, uh, that's inspired you? Um, maybe you've liked how they you know write or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, did anybody come to mind? Yeah, I mean, this might be a cop-out answer, but Vitalik is a very clear person that I mm -hmm. regard very highly. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's for multiple reasons. Like one, he definitely has a lot of like just clarity around the direction that he wants Ethereum to go into. Um, he's not like someone who is not willing to change his mind either. So he is open to new information that comes in. But generally speaking, his plan for the direction the Ethereum ecosystem should be going in. He's highly technical and he's also extremely mission-driven, right? Like a lot of folks like after their project takes off, they might become a lot less enthused to keep building and to keep being engaged. Um, but I mean, Vitalik is just constantly grinding and I really respect that about him. And he's just really helped push the entire crypto ecosystem forward. 
Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more with that as well. Um, Jay, this was incredible. Um, where can people go to stay in contact with you, follow Say Network, and get involved? Yes, absolutely. So to follow Say Network, you could go to Twitter, and it's at S-E-I-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. So that'd be best place to uh, learn more about Say. There's a link tree over there as well where you can join Discord um, and learn more about the project. Um, to follow me, it's just my first name, last name at Twitter. So J-A-Y-E-N-D-R-A-J-O-G is my Twitter handle. So just follow me over there. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us today. I hope everybody at home listening enjoyed and uh, go follow up, reach out. They're hiring. Uh, so time is of the essence to get in touch. Um, and again, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back on soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me on, sir. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.